0: As we ask each week, Father, receive these gifts yet again for the sake of your Son, for the extension of his kingdom, for the heralding of the glad news of the gospel in this place and to the ends of the earth, that he might be known and loved and adored, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Please turn with me to John's Gospel. The sixth chapter. And we'll read beginning at verse 60, reading through the end of the chapter to verse 71. uh, As we continue to watch Peter change, as we continue to watch Peter change. John 6. is of no avail. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life, but there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, did I not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? Jesus spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. This is God's word for us, his people. We thank him for it. Let's pray. Lord, help us now as we come to a time of considering your word. Uh, be the one to walk among us by your Spirit. You know our hearts. You know everything that is going on in our souls, what we bring with us, what we're distracted by, preoccupied with. Oh, Lord Jesus, by your Spirit, be at work so that our eyes might see nothing but you and our hearts embrace nothing but you. Come and help us, we ask in your name. Amen. Please be seated. I want to do two things really quickly. Um, I didn't do this in my comments at the beginning. I want to say thanks to Stan Thurman for introducing me to Tom Doran. (laughs) Because in introducing me to Tom Doran, little did I know, he was also introducing me to Melinda Bolin, if you know what I mean. And you may have noticed a delightful, lovely young woman sitting right there playing this flute. Some of you know who she is and some of you don't. Um, She's still here. I I think they will all be back. They better all be back. (laughs) Here they come. Some of you know uh, Gwendy Lamoth. Gwendy... Um, served us, played with us uh, for a number of years. Jeffrey is uh, one of her brothers. I think, I don't know this for sure, but I think she made a special trip to come back to Vero Beach to be a part of this service uh, as a way, personally, of saying goodbye to Tom. And uh, I said to Wendy, this could become a habit. You're welcome to come and be here anytime. So, Wendy, thanks for for coming and being with us. And her mom, Gwen, is here as well, too. So greet these folks after the service. There is a, um, there's a phrase that has worked itself into our, um, into our language, into our vocabulary, buried itself uh, in our collection of idioms. It's a phrase uh, that comes from the days, apparently, of Julius Caesar. Uh, it is a phrase that I really think captures what has happened to Peter in John chapter 6. It is the phrase to cross the Rubicon. When you cross the Rubicon, you have come to a point of no return. This is like Cortez landing on the Yucatan Peninsula and sinking his ships. I I know the, the lore is that he burned his ships. And I did a little research on this, and it's probably not the case that they were burned, but he scuttled his ships. He sank his ships because he was there with his soldiers. And it was very clear that for him, he had crossed a Rubicon. That's what Julius Caesar did in 49 BC. It was an act of insurrection. There was no going back. It was a capital crime for him to cross the Rubicon with a legion of soldiers. And there was just no going back. It sounds to me like Peter is at a point of no return, that he has crossed a Rubicon. And there is no turning back for him. Here's a quick summary of where Peter is. Jesus is teaching again. And this teaching, we don't have time to read the whole of the sixth chapter, but if you go back to the beginning of the sixth chapter, the teaching that we find in the last half to two-thirds of this chapter follows after the feeding of the 5,000. That's in the first part of the chapter. And what follows then after the feeding of the 5,000 is what we looked at a couple of weeks ago for two weeks, Matthew 14's account of the disciples in a boat in the midst of the Sea of Galilee, in the midst of a storm being threatened, and Jesus comes walking to them on the water. And verse 22 tells us That on the next day, meaning the day after, the night of that storm, when Jesus walked on the water, and when Peter was invited out of the boat and walked on the water, after the feeding of the 5,000, miracle, miracle, Jesus then begins to teach. And we're in the midst of that teaching. And what Jesus is saying here is simply remarkable. But what's so stunning and surprising about this? And I was struck by the hymn that we sang. Number 542. What what is so stunning about this is that verse 66, after a miracle, after a miracle, the, the miracle of Peter walking, the miracle of Jesus stilling the storm, Jesus teaching about himself. Verse 66 says, After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with Jesus. These are they who have contended for their Savior's honor long, wrestling on till life. Was ended following not the sinful throng. And in the midst of that, Jesus looks at his 12 disciples as people by the score, by the hundred, perhaps by the thousand listen to Jesus teach and turn and walk away? Jesus looks at the 12 and says, what about you? Will you also leave? And Peter, good old Peter, speaking for the rest, Stands and says, Where? Where? Where is there to go? You have words of eternal life. What's happened here? What's happened to Peter? What's happened to Peter from John chapter 1 through Luke chapter 5 through Matthew 14 here to John chapter 6. That's the sequence. That's the chronological sequence that we have walked with as we've watched Peter change. What has happened to Peter? We're going to focus on this for two weeks. We're going to think about it from the human perspective and then we're going to think about it from the divine perspective. But the human perspective is where we live, isn't it? It's where we are. What has happened to Peter such that Peter crosses this Rubicon where there is no turning back and says, you, you are the only one who has words of eternal life. There is simply no place else to go. Let me suggest this. Peter has embraced a person He has believed a promise, and that has entirely altered his perspective. He's embraced a person, he's believed a promise, with the result that his perspective has been entirely altered. Person, promise, perspective. Here's where it starts it starts with a person. What about you? Will you turn? Will you go away? Where is there to go? You. Personal pronoun. You have words of eternal life. I watched, I I didn't watch, I walked the bridges yesterday. I listened to a sermon. Seven miles, I'm out there, two hours. I listened to a sermon, 59 minutes in length. 59 Minutes in Length, by David Martin Lloyd-Jones. I'm stealing the first point from him, though I could have stolen it from, from virtually a thousand preachers. It is a thing that needs to be said over and over and over again. It cannot be said often enough. It is something about which we have to be absolutely clear. Christianity is not a moral code. Christianity is not a better worldview. Christianity is not better instruction for living. Christianity is a person. Christianity is a person. Christianity is Christ. You know, I say this, wanting, wanting so, wanting to be so careful, and wanting so not to be misunderstood. Christianity has. All kinds of implications across the totality of life. It has political implications. It has social implications. It has implications for how we interact with one another as counselor and counselee. It touches every area of life, every conceivable area of life. But at the end of the day, Christianity is Jesus. You have words. Of eternal life. See, I need to be reminded of this, folks. I need to be reminded of this. This is my job, this is my work, this is what I do. I am a preacher of the gospel. And the preaching of the gospel is not the preaching of a theological system, though there's a theology in it. The preaching of the gospel is not a preaching of a moral code, though there is a moral code in it. The preaching of the gospel is not preaching religious experiences. Though there are experiences to be had, you cannot read Psalm 16 without being engaged by the fact That the Christian religion, the biblical religion, involves the totality of who I am as a human being. What I think, how I live, and what in the depths of my soul I experience. But the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ is a preaching of Jesus Christ. The person, Jesus. Now I have to ask... Do you know this? I mean, do I know this? Is this the, the, the north star that enables me to keep everything else in perspective? Do I know this right now? You, you have words of eternal life. What matters most, folks, is that I know where I stand right now in this day with respect to the person Jesus Christ. It matters right now. And let me tell you something. It will matter even more significantly with the last breath you take. Have you come to terms with the person of Jesus Christ? That he is eternal life. I, I know my congregation pretty well. But I also read my Bible, folks. And if the Apostle Paul could be outmaneuvered and outfaked, I can. I can. Jesus wasn't. He's the only one who wasn't outfaked. But the Apostle Paul was. The Apostle Paul worked alongside Alexander and Hymenaeus and others who abandoned the faith, who departed the faith. The Apostle Paul spoke to elders in Acts chapter 20 and said, from among you wolves will arise seeking to devour the flock. He knew that he could be outfaked. He knew that he could be fooled. I think I know you pretty well. But my friends, every one of us, you and I, you will come to the end of your days. You will stand on the precipice of eternity. And the question right now, in advance of that day, the question on this day is, to what, to whom are you looking for what is on the other side of that precipice? You, Peter said, you have words of eternal life. Peter is coming to terms with the person. And and we have to understand from this passage that this is no ordinary person. This is the person who repeatedly in John's gospel, you know this, I know you know this, but it so bears repeating. This is the Jesus who repeatedly in the gospel of John uses this language in reference to himself. I am. I am. You may not know this. I think a bunch of you probably do. For those of you who don't, it's a thing worth pointing out. That that the Greek language is an inflected language. And among other things, what that means... Is that the verb in effect contains the personal pronoun or the subject of the sentence in which it is found? So when I say I am preaching, in English it's three words, in the original Greek it's two the verb and then that which informs or shapes what it is that the verb is related to. And in the verb, in the one word, is the personal pronoun I. I am preaching. I am. One word. But there is also, in the Greek language, a personal pronoun. It is the little word ego. Not the waffles. <laughs> but the word from which we get our words, egotistical and ego. I, I. And Jesus uses this phrase throughout the Gospel of John. I, ego, a me, I am, I, I am. He uses the two words, the personal pronoun and the verb, in reference to himself. Why does he do that? He does that because Jews in this day employed that phrase, I, I am, when they translated the Old Testament personal name of the living God who revealed himself to Moses at the burning bush. Moses had asked God, hey, you want me to go to Egypt? You want me to stand before Pharaoh? You want me to go to your people? I'll go. But when I get there, they're going to have a question for me. And the question is going to be this. Who sent you? lunatic? (laughs) Who sent you? Who shall I say has sent me? And God said, I am who I am. Oh, to unpackage explore plumb the depths of that phrase I am who I am I will be what I will be I am the self sustaining almighty god of heaven and earth I am the god who initiates covenant I am the god of covenant faithfulness you take all of that stuff you load it into that little phrase who is being who is the one who is sending Moses to the people in their bondage I am is sending him. And Jesus says over and over and over and over again, I am, I am, I am. You know, it's interesting. This was pointed out to me this last week. When Peter and the disciples are in the boat in the midst of that storm in Matthew 14, earlier in John chapter 6, and they are terrified They don't know if they're going to survive. They are expert fishermen, but they are frightened to death. And Jesus comes walking on the water and he says to them, do not be afraid, ego me, I am. And Peter responds and says, if it is you, bid me come and I will come. Folks, this is no ordinary person we're dealing with. This is the God of heaven and earth, clothed in in flesh. This is God incarnate, possessed of all of the attributes of divinity, possessed of all of the wisdom and knowledge, and yes, power and authority. I had an appointment, a meeting this last week, visited with someone, who's having a hard time understanding what it is that might be on the other side of the grave. You know, I can imagine a soul being in heaven, but I keep hearing about this body thing, and I just don't get that. And I said, well, that's what happened to Jesus. And this person said, yeah, but he was different. You got that right. Way different. Way different. You cannot, you cannot reduce the unique person of Jesus Christ to simple humanity. And the text itself, this passage, and a little bit later in John chapter 8, makes very, very clear that the Jews who were listening and watching Jesus got what he was saying. John 6 verses 41 and 42 So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, wait a minute. This is Jesus, son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know. And they turned and walked away from him. because they could not embrace that this person is unlike any other person. God incarnate, the great I am, come into the world to do what no president can do, to do what no prime minister can do, can do, no Congress can do, no Parliament can do, no military dictator can do. The King of glory comes into the world with His glory, veiled in flesh, and He comes to feed your souls, my friends. He comes to give you something to eat that you can't find place else. He comes to give you something to drink that you will never find any place else. You know this passage, don't you? You know what it is that Jesus says? Verse 47, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. They ate on Monday. They had to gather more on Tuesday. They ate on Tuesday. They had to gather more on Wednesday. They ate Thursday and Friday and Saturday. They collected a double portion on Saturday so that they had Sunday covered and they got up Monday morning and they had to collect more and eventually they died. That bread did not do, could not do what Jesus alone can do. Feed you For eternal life, earlier Jesus has said, I am the bread of life. He who eats of me will never hunger. He who drinks of me will never thirst. This is a unique person. And folks, the second thing that happens is that Peter embraces it. He begins to embrace this reality. He begins to embrace this promise. He's listened to Jesus. He's watched Jesus. He's seen the miracles. He's like everybody else in the crowd. They've seen it too. They've heard. They've listened. They've watched. But while they're turning away, Peter is crossing his Rubicon, having embraced the person Right? Remember the progression that we looked at a couple of weeks ago? John chapter 1, all these incredible things are said about Jesus. Nathaniel has something to say. Philip has something to say. Andrew has something to say. John the Baptist has something to say. Peter has nothing to say. The only time Peter's represented in the scriptures where he has nothing to say. Matthew Henry has a great comment about Peter when he identifies, recognizes what so many people have recognized, that Peter is the one who speaks for the 12. He says, it's not because Peter had more of the ear of the master. It's because he had more of a mouth than the rest. (laughs) John chapter 1, he didn't say anything. And then Luke chapter 5, you remember the shift Do you remember the shift? There's a shift. Jesus says, get in the boat, go back out, go fishing. He says, master, we fished all night. Then there is the miracle, and there is the great haul of fish, the great catch of fish, and the next thing Peter says is, Lord, Lord, depart from me, I'm a sinful man. See, he's come to terms and is coming to terms with the person. He's hearing the I am stuff. He heard the I am stuff in the middle of the storm in the boat. But as he embraces the person, he begins to believe in the promise. He believes in the promise. You have words of eternal life. You have words of eternal life. What has he been hearing? He's been hearing words of eternal life. I'm the bread of heaven Eat, and you'll never be hungry again. Drink, you'll never be thirsty again. Those are words of eternal life. He's saying, I am the door. I am the good shepherd. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the light of the world. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, even if he die, yet will he live. Folks, Richard Baxter used to say, I preach as a dying man to dying men and women and to children. Peter is embracing the totality of the person. Is he there? It's hard to know, isn't it? He's a screw up just like the rest of us. We're going to see it unfold, we're going to see him stumble and fall but he is beginning to embrace the person and as he embraces the person, he is believing the promise that Jesus has words of eternal life. Let me ask you this. Camp with me on this for just a minute. I talked about this at the refuge on Friday morning. I asked the same question of the women there. What is it about eternal life that makes eternal life, eternal life? What is it about eternal life that makes eternal life, eternal life? And someone said, it lasts forever. And I said, no. Oh yes, it does last forever. But it is not the foreverness of eternal life that makes eternal life, eternal life. I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but everyone will live forever. Think about that, friends. Everyone will live forever. If everyone will live forever, then it isn't the foreverness about eternal life that makes eternal life eternal life. Because everybody's going to live forever. And the reality, my friends, is that there are those who will live in eternal blessedness forever and there are those there are those who will live apart from eternal blessedness forever and rather than knowing blessedness will know curse and wrath everyone will live forever what is it that makes eternal life Eternal life. It is life that makes eternal life eternal life. It is amazing the number of times in the scriptures our appetite for life is appealed to as God speaks. You, look, You want life. You want joy. You want happiness. I think I've said this before probably too many times, except I don't think it can ever be said often enough. You were created with a capacity for joy. You were created for a capacity for blessedness. You were created with a capacity for life. It is the switch in your soul that is designed to drive you in the direction of the only source of blessedness and joy in life, which is God himself. And what do we do? Right? We turn that desire in all kinds of empty, foolish, silly directions when the scriptures are replete with invitations to turn to God. Psalm 34, 8, taste and see that chicken is good. Taste and see that a bigger bank account is good. Taste and see that a different body is good. Taste and see that a better resume is good. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Taste and see. Psalm 16, you have shown me the path of life in your presence Is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Isaiah 55 1. Come, come, you who thirst. Come, you who have no money. Come and buy a new stinking car. Come, buy and eat. Without money and without cost. Freely given, gladly given by the only one who possesses what it is our souls so deeply desire life. Peter is beginning to get that. He has crossed a Rubicon and there is no turning back. You have words. You, Jesus. You in your person, you, nobody else does, no place else, you have words of eternal life. And embracing that person and beginning to believe that promise completely, completely rejiggers Peter's whole perspective about everything. Everything is different. Everything begins to be different for Peter. There are places in Peter's life that need reform. Peter could use a good therapist. Peter could use the wisdom of the ages because he's thick at so many points and a few brilliant insights from the philosophers would stand him in good stead as he conducts his ministry. But what Peter sees in Jesus is not a good therapist, not moral reform, not some tidbits of wisdom for the better living of life, for the better conducting of ministry. What Peter sees in Jesus is life itself. You, Jesus, have words of eternal life and it has begun to work on him to such an extent that he stands in the midst of that crowd and as one by one by dozen By score, by hundred, they turn and walk away. Peter stays standing stock still. And when asked the question, he's only too glad to use the mouth that God has given him to say, You, Jesus, you're the only one. You have words of eternal life. Nobody else does. So here it is, folks. Let me me be a little bit autobiographical here as we close. I remember the days before I was a Christian. I've said this, you, you know this. For those of you who are newer, I wasn't born in a black robe with red crosses on it. I didn't come out of the womb looking like this. Until I was 19 years of age, I knew some facts about Christianity, but I did not know anything about Jesus. And I remember those days before I was a Christian, and I remember one particular day, one particular moment, God in his grace and mercy has forever etched this on the portals of my mind. I was 19 years old. I was a burned out deeply depressed, deeply frustrated, ex-hippie. That's how old I am. I'm old enough to be an ex-hippie. And I was an ex-hippie because the counterculture proved to be as bankrupt as every other human culture. And I remember standing in my bathroom, shaving I was sort of shaving around the edges of the pathetic beard that I had at the time. But I was shaving, and what looked back at me in that mirror was the most deeply dissatisfied human being I have ever known in my life. I looked at myself, and my heart sank. Nine months later, a friend introduced me to Jesus of Nazareth, who possesses words of eternal life. Folks, that was 44 years ago. And I can tell you this, this is the God's honest truth. I have been sad, I have wept, I have grieved over my sin. I have grieved at graves. I have buried children. I have buried young women. I have buried mothers. I have buried grandparents. I have wept over those deaths, as well as a whole lot of other things. And I have not once, since that day, 44 years ago, ever felt anything remotely close to the emptiness that stared back at me from that mirror. Not once. Jesus delivers. I have to ask this. It's just my story, and you don't have to believe it, but it's true. Not once have I felt the emptiness that I felt staring back at me from that mirror since since embracing Jesus and believing his promise. Now, here's the question. Have you crossed the Rubicon? Folks, there is a Rubicon. There is a river to be crossed. Have you come to the place where, like Peter, you've said there is no place else to go? Jesus, you alone have words of eternal life. Now, listen. Jesus was dead. Jesus was buried. But Jesus is alive. And it is Jesus who by his spirit stands in the midst of this assembly and says, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He says that. No, I'm not saying it. He says that. He is the one inviting you. If you have never crossed the Rubicon, you may have been in church your whole life, 60 years, 40 years, 30 years, 15. You may have been around this stuff a whole bunch of time, but never really crossed the Rubicon and said, Jesus, you, you have words of eternal life. He's the one standing before you and saying, come to me you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. In his name, I'm inviting you, asking you, constraining you, if I can, to come to him because he has words that you will need as you draw your last breath. Words of eternal life. Would you be quiet with me for just a minute? Would you be quiet with me for just a minute and think about this before we pray? Lord Jesus, you can speak with a power and a clarity that no human voice possesses. And I beg you that for those in this room who have heard your voice and have crossed the Rubicon, that you would speak peace to their souls. But oh God, if there's somebody here who's never really crossed the Rubicon, never really stepped over the line, would you speak with power and would you draw that person to yourself so that life might be given? Hear this prayer, for it is prayed in your name. Amen. Come, thou fount.